the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are glad to have you join us today. You can always find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, uh, Twitter at Common Good Talk, uh, podcasts, wherever it is you get your podcast, mm. and hopefully soon at the domain of laughingpastors.com. We're going with laughingpastors.com or thelaughingpastors.com. Which one, which one do you like more? I like them both. Oh, Okay. Let's get them both. I'm going to also get laughing spelled with two F's, just in case. <laughs> that's how the kids are doing it. That's how days. all the cool kids are doing it. Yeah, that's how I buy domains, the way cool kids are searching for websites. We should get the one that's about cows called Laughing Pastures. We'd probably mm-hmm. go that. That's good. That's good. We're just what, else, what else you got? Milk, Laughing Pasture, <laughs> Louis Pasteur. <laughs> that joke was pasteurized. Oh, there's so many layers there to are, that. There are My more goodness. More. Holy cow. I, oh, yes, there's more. But we're glad to have you join us today. <laughs> Uh, if that little inside joke, you don't follow it, check out the podcast from yesterday and mm. you can follow along. You well, still probably won't follow it. It's a good point. <laughs> Sometimes we think this whole thing is just you and I having a conversation that carries over from when we're off air, on air, and just keeps going. It does sort of feel that way sometimes. Uh, so we've talked multiple times about Alex Trebek and his uh, on again, off again fight with uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. And the last update was that it had returned and uh, kind of, but he's still doing Jeopardy. And we did that story a month or two ago where he talked about the pain that he's in mm-hmm. while doing it. Uh, and I'm sure you saw this, but I wanted to start with just a very uplifting story. And, and I think there is a lesson in here about the power of compassion and even just the power of words. Uh, so the story goes like this. Uh, during a, uh, a Jeopardy taping the other day, uh, there was a college student at Brown University uh, a contestant by the name of uh, I'm going to go with Druv D H R U V Druv okay uh, Gower he's a college student at Brown University and uh, in lieu of writing an answer to the final Jeopardy question uh, he wrote this he wrote we love you Alex that's all that he wrote on there he wrote we love you Alex. Uh, and the incorrect answer might have cost him $1,995, but it says Trebek's response and his reaction was priceless. Uh, Trebek read the answer, so obviously he doesn't know that it's coming up. And he reads it, we love you, and he wrote, oh, that's very kind, thank you. Uh, and then he proceeded to continue to try to move on with the show, but Alex Trebek was clearly choked up. Like, he was clearly like, this has meant a lot to him. Uh, and and I, I, it just has become kind of a viral clip uh, because uh, of, I think, Alex Trebek's reaction. It very much humanized what he's going through, but also just what this one little gesture by this Jeopardy contestant 
what it did for him, and it spurred this whole kind of we love you, Alex. So I'm wondering, did you see it, and when you saw it, uh, what did you think of it? Yeah, I saw it. Um, I'm curious. I'm actually – so we talked about it last week, you know, debating whether or not we do it, mm-hmm. and – People maybe don't know how necessarily even the functions of the show work, but typically whoever's in the driver's seat, so you're in the driver's seat this week, you know, tends to sort of manage what makes it into what we call the rundown. So you kind of choose the story. So people are like, oh, that one was dark. Oh, that one. Was yeah, dark. right. Right. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Whoever's. And that's not always the case. Sure, we, you know, sure. we have kind of a back and forth here. But I'm curious because we had, you know, we had talked to you and I just as friends and people uh, about it a little bit. What about this even a week later for you is like, nah, I want to dedicate a segment to this because I, th- I think this is important. I think there, I think it's a great question. Uh, not just because of the heartwarming nature of it, although that was part of it. Like when you read the guy's thought process behind it, he's like, because some people were like, did he just not know the answer? And he wrote, I could have tried to puzzle a qu- an answer together. He said he wasn't sure, but he could have puzzled it together. But really, I just kept thinking about Alex and thought he should know. I'm just very grateful I got the opportunity to say what I, I know everyone was thinking, sending all my love. And so I think for me, it was this. I think what this uh, young guy did, this college student did, did not take a lot of work. Now, it cost him some money, but in the grand scheme of things, it didn't cause him a lot of um, a lot of work. Yeah. And it meant the world to Alex Trebek, like someone like Alex Trebek, who's a professional. He's a TV guy. He's done this for a long time for him to get choked up. It clearly meant a lot to him. And so it got me thinking, what are some of the things that we uh, as just I almost said as pastors or Christ, just people in general that we don't that that we overlook doing some of these simple, simple things that could just mean the world to people and could really cause them in a in a darker moment, a, a lift or in a struggle or just cause somebody who's not even in a dark time to go, oh, I'm loved. I'm cared for. Uh, I, I know there are probably a thousand things in a day that I could do that I don't do because I'm running so hard or just, it's not in my thought process, but sending that text to that person that just says, I appreciate you. You talked about how at your old church, you guys would send handwritten cards to Mm -hmm. people. And I remember you saying like, you were amazed by what it meant to people. You're like, what it meant. You just put in 10 hours last weekend (laughs) at the church and I'm writing you a card. The least I could do is write you a card. When after you and I talked about that on the radio show, I was convicted to be like i need to do this Hmm. and i haven't done it like it just (laughs) it's these kinds of things and you know maybe your thing's not a handwritten card maybe it's just a quick email to people hey i'm thinking about you maybe it's uh flowers for your wife maybe it's whatever it might be but how many opportunities do we have to speak into people's lives and just say i'm thinking of you i notice you I'm praying for you. I care about you that we go past that would make an enormous difference in these people's lives and would take very little amount of time for us. I think that's why I wanted to go into this, because for me, these kind of simple gestures of encouragement are probably not something I do on a regular basis and do very well. I kind of assume people feel this way or just Mm. don't think about it. And I do think in this reaction of Alex Trebek, you're reminded, even in the day-to-day, the power of things like that. Yeah, I I don't mention a whole lot on the show, but I I started an organization a few years ago called Beauty in the Commons. And this isn't like the main function of the organization, but every uh, December I make a uh, a list that you can make like as a wallpaper on your phone to have with you, whatever of uh, like little acts of kindness for the month of December, because it tends uh-huh. to be this really, really like stressful encounter. And I encourage people, you know, post a photo online to kind of encourage and inspire others. But I'm amazed at how many people, one, participated in it, but two, how many people 
will say things like, this actually was a real blessing to me just to be able to send a card. And I, you know, there's mm-hmm. a bunch of organizations I, I partner with. There's a bunch of websites I didn't realize. There's literally a website called uh, cardsforhospitalizedkids.com. So you don't even need to know who the person is. Really? One of the challenges last year was to like leave, leave quarters on washing machines at a laundromat. Um, and you know, like the, you won't even meet the person that you're blessing, but can you imagine right. if, you know, you got to go to laundromat in the first place in December, that's really stressful. And there's already money that are waiting for you. There's mm. a, um, there's a website called op, uh, operation, uh, gratitude.com. You can send care packages to soldiers. You can like, there's just a lot of opportunities to, to love on people, even from the comfort of your own home. Like it's just a, a, a card or a note or, um, I just think there's a lot of, opportunities that we often overlook especially in this season because we're all kind of stressed with our own thing but right. i don't know even for me putting this list together every year uh is really convicting because it make one it inspires me that so many organizations exist for people to do this like there's um national diaper bank network.org really? a lot of like low-income families can't even afford diapers which is just terrific there's uh, donors choose we can support a classroom you know and a lot of times my, you know, my wife's a teacher and they uh, really okay. struggled even just for things like staples and paper sometimes like there's just so many cool little organizations all over the place that have opportunities to come alongside and uh and make a difference in the world i think that's uh i think you, like what you're saying this this act on jeopardy was seemingly really small but meant a lot to yeah, the I person so. receiving it. i think that's just a good that's a good rule of thumb i think just in general especially during the holidays yeah and so that's why i wanted to talk about this it's uplifting you can find the clip anywhere uh and it, it but i think it more reminds us uh to just the opportunity to care for people and look at what you just said that's a, a google search you start finding these places uh-huh. but you would never think about these things right and so i think it's it's good for us to think about well coming up next an article out of the Gospel Coalition talking about Sunday morning worship and where does evangelism fit in. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you join us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you can find us also on Twitter at Common Good Talk and uh, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Thank you in advance for doing that. We appreciate it. Well, we're both pastors, uh, and so we think a lot about church. But most people out there listening, you're probably a part of a church. You've thought about church, and uh, but maybe you've never really thought of this question. So at the Gospel Coalition, they ask the question, where does evangelism fit in on Sunday mornings? Uh, And he says, uh, the author here, Michael Keller, asks, there is an active debate about the role of evangelism and that should about the role evangelism should play in Sunday worship services on any given Sunday. Should we assume our audience are believers or nonbelievers? So before getting into what this guy thinks, how do you tackle that? Do you do you feel like it is an either or? How do you guys at community or even before when you're planning services at Poplar, how did you kind of. Uh, think through that question. Yeah, I think it's a both hand. At least it has been. Uh, I think he might in this article come across a little more black and white than maybe I would mm-hmm. uh, in my own discussions. But, you know, especially in a in a place like Chicago, where there's a lot of churches available at all times, you know, I don't I don't want to assume um, that someone isn't a believer just because I haven't seen them. But I also don't want to assume that they're like, you know, in, into all the terminology, they understand mm-hmm. the backstory and like little simple adjustments. One, like I try to always 
mention like we're so glad that you're here with you know whether you're yeah. visiting us or not but also little things like john if you say john and then include just a, a sentence or two like oh who is one of jesus's closest friends yeah. just to make sure that uh, if i don't know who john is and you just kind of riff on him as if i'm supposed to like i instantly feel like an outsider so we're always yep. trying to balance the, the lifetime churchgoer and the person that just walked in for the first time. Absolutely. I remember. Uh, so Andy Stanley speaks of that often, right? He always says, don't mm-hmm. just say in the book of Romans, talk about right. who wrote it and this and that. Right. I remember uh, going out with somebody who had been going to our church for a little while when we started four corners and uh, we went out and he said something to the effect of like, when you talk about the disciples, who are you talking about? Mm. And that was such a convicting question to me. And he was just asking it genuinely, like, who are these people you're talking about? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just am saying it, like assuming everybody knows who these disciples are. And like, that's a, a big deal right there. So yeah. uh, it is an interesting question. And the author here, Michael Keller, says uh, the Bible doesn't give us rigid model for our worship services, but it does give us general practices of praise, lament, confession, conviction, and convocation. Uh, we are therefore to create worship spaces where these practices can be performed to edify both believers and also non-believers. Hmm. To do this, he says, we must we first must build our worship services, assuming non-believers will be present. Christian congregants who will be doing the inviting can immediately tell if their friend or coworker will be at ease. Uh, in your service. So he's saying, uh, make that assumption. And then he gets into five values you should have and some practices that may follow. So let's talk about these values. And I wonder uh, if, if these are values you and I hold uh, as we are putting together a service and with the practices here, why don't you do the first value? All right. Value number one, our language must be understandable. We were just talking about this. Mm -hmm. This might be the biggest hurdle for churches in a post-Christian context. For too long, Christian subcultures have been able to exist with, quote, tribal language and dialect without needing to explain their verbiage, which is exactly what we were just saying. The Mm -hmm. practice that he suggests is translate. Often when I'm writing my sermons, I try to imagine individuals who have never been to church. For me, uh, I remember I was talking about Joseph Mm -hmm. of the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat persuasion. (laughs) And someone afterwards was like, oh, man, I really loved learning more about Joseph. At what point did he have Jesus, though? And I was like, holy cow, different Joseph. But for him, not oh, really a churchgoer. And he's like, I know of one Joseph in the Bible, and I'm assuming that's him. And I was like, man, shame on me for not being more that's specific about, like, for him, that was a really obvious question, though. So, yeah, value yep. number one is our language must be understandable. Value number two, the worship service must be understandable. If worship is bestowing worth on something, then humans don't have the option not to worship, for we always bestow worth on something, he writes. The concept of a service, worship service, however, is a foreign one to many people. So it's our job to interpret it to a post-Christian culture. This is helpful for both Christians and non-Christians. And the practice, he says, uh, at the church he's at, Redeemer Lincoln Square, uh, they print short margin notes that explain each item of the service. For instance, when it's time for confession, there's a side note that reads, confession is when we're honest about ourselves and each other with God. As we admit our misplaced affections, we are called to reorder our lives. Only by being honest about our flaws will the good news of grace be significant. That's good. Yeah. Value number three, you must be appropriately transparent. Emphasis on appropriately, probably, as social media becomes more prevalent, the cultivated self presented online creates distrust. People crave authenticity. Though we know our lives are not all filled with happiness, that's what we often see presented in church. It's more important than ever uh, to show fully authentic, broken but hopeful humans in our service. I think the broken but hopeful piece is the hard balance. Because I think there are plenty of churches that have maybe swung the pendulum way far to like the constant 
maybe wallowing in brokenness, yes. which can also present its own set of problems. So the practice he suggests is our services should always contain worship elements, not just of hope, but also lament and confession without becoming too self-referential. I try to regularly reveal my own struggles in order to embody this value. Do you guys have any lament or confession at Four Corners? Not enough. Really? I don't. I think. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, probably not enough. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like uh, Sunday morning is is oftentimes and it should be in some ways, but is oftentimes we jump straight to celebration. Hmm. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. And so I like to talk about hard things in the sermon, but as for giving people moments to mm-hmm. probably not enough. That's good. Uh, value number four, assume non-believer participation. One can do this by articulating their objections to the faith better than they can. The benefit is twofold. Christians have heard the same objections and wonder what the Christian answer is. And the non-Christian feels heard when you intelligently state their concerns. So the practice is this four things. He writes print prayers for those not taking communion. So they have something to do during. Oh, that's good. During that time. Number two, welcome and address non-believers at the beginning of the Uh service. Right. Number three, during the sermon insert, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might be thinking Mm -hmm. this lets them and their Christian friends know you're considering their issues. Number four, consider doing a Q&A time. At our church, we call it a Q&R, question and response, he That's says, what we do, yeah. Because we promise to respond. We print a phone number in the bulletin, and we allow anyone to text us questions to be addressed after the service for about 15 to 20 minutes. You said you do that? Well, I would do that specifically at Poplar, the, uh, okay. the Q&A thing afterwards. But we do, anytime we've hosted something like a Q&A, we, we call it a Q&R. Interesting. It's, the goal isn't for us just to give you answers because some of the stuff won't have answers. You know, a yeah. lot of the questions are like, why would God allow this? Yes. You know, yep. and I don't want to I don't want to even insinuate that like, oh, I'm, let me give you the answer to this. Like, yeah. oh, we have a response. But that, some of that stuff is unanswerable. Interesting. That's great. Value number five, present word and deed clearly. Both the non-Christian and the Christian need to hear the word of grace embodied and preached clearly. Grace is not just having your record right in the past. It's also the assurance of future life with him. Many Christian doctrines are important and need discussing, but all of them are predicated on experiencing grace. This was a discussion I actually had a number of times with the first youth pastor that I hired mm. and, and that really being a journey of him, you know, disagreeing with this and then kind of coming around to it. Interesting. So let me just share the practices he suggests Four things here too. one consider quarterly prayers of lament that highlight a current ill in the world, asking for God's wisdom about how we can alleviate needs. Mm. Number two, highlight various ministries within the service where congregants can serve and live out their beliefs. Three, do a prayer walk in your neighborhood to identify potential unmet needs. And four, ensure every sermon shows the main problem for both the Christian and the non-Christian is unbelief in the real grace offered in Jesus. That's a pretty solid list. I'd love to know what people disagree with or what they'd add, what they take away, because, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, he says this is not an exhaustive list, but perhaps it can help you reimagine ways you can leverage your worship service and congregation into being a space for all people. This is convicting because... You know, I do think it's a both and is it for the believer, or the non-believer? It's for both. Yeah. And I think we can get into ruts of not thinking there's non-believers there. Right. And when you get into that rut, there won't be non-believers there anymore. Right. And right. Uh, I think he gives some really good, helpful uh, hint, uh, feedback as to uh, uh, how to structure your Sunday mornings around that. So as Ian said, we'd love to know what you have to say about this. It'll be up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, an article about the emoji. I wonder what your favorite emoji is. That's I, coming up next I here. I do not have one. Everybody has a favorite emoji. That's not true. Isn't the, isn't the fallback just the poop emoji? No. No? No? We, have a, lot, we, have, we have a lot to talk about. Coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life.
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, glad to have you joining us today. Uh, if you want to find us on Facebook, you can do so at The Common Good Radio Show. On Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. I feel like an appropriate thing would be to put this article up on Facebook and ask people for their favorite emojis. Just mm. put emojis up there. I've never heard you use the word emojis so many times. What is, a, a, and does emoji mean anything, stand for anything? We all know what they are, but I wonder if it like is it an acronym for something? Is it uh, something? I don't know. I don't know what it is. Kind of uh, like, yeah. yeah, it is of Japanese origin. Okay. That's all we know. Yeah, I think... Oh, gosh. I'm going to get this wrong. Okay. I have no idea, Sue. I think it is Moji. E, so like email, right? Like e-electronic. I think oh, Moji is... sure. It means like character or okay. image or something like that. If you're wrong, I'm buying it anyway. That was said well. That was <laughs> I really think that's right. I okay. don't I don't. I can look it up. So if you're like me, when you, when you text, especially, a lot of it for me is just kind of emoji. Like my wife will ask me something, thumbs up emoji, you know? Uh, she tells me something that... Uh, happened and it's like, ugh, like scary. Like, uh, what, what would the, what would be the description of that face? Uh, it's funny that you're making it right now, know, but no, but one, no one can see that. It could be sad emoji. It could be like, ugh, emoji. One of those, something like you, that. You know what I see a lot is people not realizing the difference between the like crying emoji and the crying laughing emoji. Oh no, I've but seen maybe so the smile many faces. What is part? That's of what that. I'm saying. I've seen a number. Of, well, it's not quite as obvious, yeah, but I've seen right. people comment on a really sad post the crying laughing emoji oh, no. and you're like oh boy that is uncomfortable oh no uh and so this article at the christian post is uh basically saying this and this is what we want to get in that an emoji is not enough uh in and it's basically uh, that we've begun texting or emailing or communicating in very superficial ways through technology that sometimes is not enough when people are going through stuff. So let me read the beginning of this. All right. The news in the past several months has been troubling, especially for those in the evangelical world, from the heartbreaking sudden death of a Christian leader to polarizing feelings expressed over the refugee crisis at the southern border to big platform Christian leaders leaving the faith. These are some of the stories creating the conversations for those of faith. These events have elicited sadness, tragic loss, shock, confusion, and anger. Yet as we scan and skim the headlines or the character limited summaries online, we are left feeling that some essential piece of the existential puzzle is missing. Simply expressing our reaction to the news with an emoji seems uncomfortable, uncomfortable and incomplete. One of the primary reasons for this is the platform on which the news is being circulated. To be clear, there are positive aspects of communicating through social media, including efficiency and the ability to broadcast a message across oceans, along with the sheer breadth of people. Social media has done a lot of good for many, yet we must have an honest conversation to discuss the pitfalls of communicating over these platforms. So we'll stop there. What do you think about what he said, what he's getting at? I, I don't think it's just pitfalls about communicating. Also, I think even just, and we've read this earlier, uh, I think it was Karen Swallow Pryor that wrote an article about some of the dangers of even reading digitally, like what's happening in our brain if we're only reading the Bible from a screen. So I, I think it's more than just... Yep interpersonal communication but either way the call of the article is to be mindful of how technology is is shaping us and often it's so subtle that we don't really realize it so i think to me this is such a brilliant way to go after what all of us have felt to some degree like oh i don't know that this is enough of a response but Mm -hmm. heart emoji right yes we've both been on the receiving and giving end of that which is interesting because like you're so you're 42 right i am and you've mentioned a couple of times some of the emoji like you're not 
I think what most people picture is like the target demographic for emoji usage yep. and yet or any technology <laughs> it's very possible but you admitted though that's a very real thing though like i yep. guess i'll just give the surprised face emoji now i'm like my wife and i communicate um you know almost exclusively in gifts so there's just <laughs> so true it's just a whole my wife thread back do do often, okay. yes. which is fine i think that's fine it's but fun. we wouldn't use that to communicate like real serious empathy, sympathy, yeah. compassion. Like I'm having a really hard day and you send back something from the office is probably a bad move. <laughs> yeah, I probably have done I've like done a, <laughs> like a like a sad kitten gif or something, but Uh-oh. I think I think there's a lot of really helpful insight in this article about what it's actually doing to us and what we miss by, you know, maybe exclusively communicating via GIF. Yeah, interestingly, just last night somebody texted me and we were out to dinner, so I didn't feel the ability to write back, but it was yeah. this person was going to speak at something and said, can you just pray for me as I get up there? And I mm. literally sent back the emoji of two praying hands. Oh, really? And I do remember when I sent that going, that felt a little weird. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever used that one. So he writes this and then he gets into a little list. He says, the way in which we express ourselves in relationships, the joy, struggles and mundane must be done in a way that reflect the richness of those relationships. When we communicate emotional truths about ourselves merely through the screen, we not only diminish the richness of our personhood, the very nature of our relationships become cheapened in the process Two, if we want to live in more human ways, we need to cultivate practices that reflect our humanity. The question then becomes, how do we do that? And he gives four steps. Why don't you give us the first one? All right. Here are the four tips Four tips for taking steps in that direction. Uh, one, we need to be aware of what technology cannot do. Technology is not bad. Uh, the issue, as MIT professor Sherry Turkle has pointed out, is that technology has the power to change our way of being in the world. When it comes to relationships and expressing ourselves in relationships, we should not eliminate technology, but rather become aware of what it can do and what it cannot do. And I think earlier in the article, they're talking about embodied experiences mm-hmm. require embodied responses. So when someone's experienced grief in a deep way and we respond solely digitally, there's potential problems. there. Yep. Number two, we need to reclaim human engagement. The engines of social media and digital technology are limited when it comes to expressing issues that are emotional in nature. In our friendships, we are longing to be understood, accepted, and listened to. Coming to grips with this reality, I've made it a principle to meet with friends without my phone. By removing the phone, I find myself more engaged and present in those social moments. That's a difficult one, but such a good one. Yeah, number three, uh, we need a real community. The sense of incompleteness or lack of closure we feel and processing hard stories points to our need for community that works with and understands complexity. Social media does not allow us to emotionally process what is needing to be done in person and face-to-face. Good. Number four, we as Christians should model community. Uh, we should ask ourselves whether we are demonstrating a patience, love, gentleness, respect, and acceptance in the way we process hard and difficult things with That's our good. friends. Are we modeling a better way, a holistic way of living out what we need in community? Are we showing and making space in our community for people who struggle with doubts, unanswered questions, perhaps unanswered prayers, and complex life issues? That one's, that one's powerful. To me, this is uh, just another peg in the argument that the church will never be fully digital. And we've read yeah. previous articles about the rise of podcasts and streaming and all. And I think all those things can be and already are really, really helpful tools. And we're using this as a community. And I see a lot of churches, I think leveraging that brilliantly. Yeah. I don't think there will ever be, nor should there be a replacement of in-person human to human incarnate ministry. And I think the more that we can just recognize that Mm. and maybe a way to say it is that like real true Christ-like love is inefficient. Yeah. It just is. I, I, I think of my, my best closest relationships. There's plenty of, there's plenty of 
just being present with one another that on a spreadsheet would look like, well, you guys have coffee for an hour? And yes. what, do you, what do you accomplish? Nothing. We didn't accomplish anything. Yeah. That's part of what it means to be in the world. And I think having to be okay with that is probably easier said than done in our like hyper production minded culture where, you know, we're only as good as our output. But uh, yeah, I think Christ followers need to model something better. It's really good. I love how he says this. Uh, by doing all of these things, we can model human ways of being human. <laughs> I yeah. think that's powerful. Uh, and in the end, this is all that we want. He says it is what we need. You can find that article on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show, the Common Good Radio Show. It's called An Emoji is Not Enough. Well, coming up next, uh, an article about author Rebecca Lyons on the battle with anxiety and four rhythms that foster spiritual health. That's next here on the Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good uh, Radio Show. On Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. And as always, you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. And uh, we are grateful for those of you. Uh, who do this. Uh, it was really fun at the end of last week. Uh, Ian and I were talking about how we were at the uh, the Lyft conference and to meet some people who listen to the show. Do you ever have that feel like, mm-hmm. I think we've shared this, I'm more <laughs> the one who goes down this road where I'm always like, oh, you listen? Like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but that was really fun. If we met you, it was, uh, thanks for coming and introducing yourself. That was a lot of fun for us. Um, so at the Christian Post, kind of talking about a book that's coming out, author Rebecca Lyons uh, she talks about her battle with anxiety and gives four rhythms that foster spiritual health. So we read that best-selling author and speaker Rebecca Lyons can still remember her first full-blown panic attack 2010 on a flight from Atlanta to New York sitting in the back row of the plane. You ever sat in the back row of the plane? Oh, I love the back row of the plane. Really? Even though you can't like go backwards on it? or Oh, I don't even mind because there's no one behind you. There's no okay. there's no kids kicking your seat. There's no it's lovely. OK. As the plane began to descend for landing, she felt herself become panicked, unable to breathe. She collapsed on the floor of the plane, curled in a fetal position. It was terrifying. She recalled. I stayed on the floor until all the passengers got off the plane. I was so ashamed. Four months before that fateful day, Lyons and her family, her husband Gabe and their three children had uprooted their family, had uprooted their life in the suburbs of Atlanta to move to Manhattan. That, she recalled, is when panic attacks began happening. Over the next several months, the panic attacks became more frequent from a, and public, from a subway to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I started to shrink back and avoid being in crowded places. It was so debilitating, and I didn't know what to do. Hmm. Desperate, lines cried out to God for rescue. I was on my knees crying, asking God for deliverance. For the first time, I was flooded with peace. I didn't have to run from public places for my panic to stop all was still and she says that began a healing journey and caused me to re-examine my response to fear let's stop Mm. there for a sec i don't think uh when i was younger i don't think i ever really grasped that panic attacks were a debilitating thing for people Mm. and the older i get the more i get to talk to people and like oh this is i never questioned it but but was more like just unaware of them yeah this is a big deal for this is a debilitating deal for many people who might be listening right now yeah and it doesn't manifest the same for for everyone either Mm. so uh, my guess is someone has had a panic attack in front of you and you didn't realize it interesting yeah okay what are some of the ways it manifests itself that you've seen or maybe you've you've heard from people i mean you have stories like this but i think for some people if they're you know in a 
board meeting or something like it'll be it'll be shortness of breath it'll be mm. uh just an avalanche of thoughts it can be you know elevated heart rate it can be it can be a, a bunch of different things that somebody may have you know trained themselves to mitigate in the moment but it is a very very real and very very uh crippling kind of thing yep so in her new book lions uh, her new book called rhythms of renewal Trading stress and anxiety for a life of peace and purpose. It says lines pulls from her own journey with anxiety and depression to guide readers through those four life giving rhythms. So she's going, Hey, I've always struggled with anxiety and depression. And she doesn't say now they're all gone. Like, right. Here's how. right. But instead here uh, is how I live with them and kind of work through them while kind of embracing some of the stuff that the Bible talks about, whether it be about peace or abundant life. And uh, so she says, rest and restore are input rhythms because you can't give what you can't receive, she explained. Mm. And then the second two, connect and create, are output rhythms. Now you can go back out and offer something uh, to the world. Talk to me about when you hear rest and restore. What does that look like, especially for somebody struggling, and what stops us from doing those things? Oh, gosh, that's an endless list, I think. The rest and restore piece is something that, whether or not you experience panic attacks, I think as a culture we've just gotten worse at because we're always – going and we're always doing and I, I think particularly when it comes to like sabbath rhythms we so often see it just as not doing anything yep. which is n- not what sabbath is at all it's a, it is about ceasing from work you know sabbath is the word shabbat which literally means to stop but it is meant to actually like stir and cultivate something i think in us so when people talk about i like that she linked rest and restore yeah because for a lot of us We'll rest or at least we'll stop, but there's nothing restorative about it where we'll just kind of veg, which you need to do sometimes. Right. But the idea, the question they'll often ask people is what stirs your affections for Christ? What is it's not about just like turning everything off. It's actually about being more in tune with what God is doing in your life, in your family's life, in your job, in your neighborhood, whatever. So Sabbath includes like a an engagement of sorts, not just a I'm going to unplug and then just binge the office for 12 hours that's not what sabbath is and that's arguably not really like restorative rest although giving Mm. yourself permission to just veg once in a while is something that i struggle with but i think it it certainly can be helpful as long as that's not the only peg yeah absolutely she says rhythm begins with rest take a quiet moment ask god are uh, are you and i okay do i have unresolved grief and trauma kind of praying through these things she said restore uh, means physically caring for one's body. God made our bodies to know that, know what we need. Uh, so brisk walk, you know, taking a nap, these types of things right. uh, are important. Uh, she says, third, connecting with others is an effective way to combat stress. Giving a hug raises dopamine and gives a sense of belonging lines posited. Embrace, listen, lead with vulnerability and respond with vulnerability. That's how real connection happens. So this connecting with other people, uh, speak to what what you've seen this do for people who might be, because I'm guessing when you're de- dealing with anxiety and depression and things like that, you're wanting to be away from people, usually, generally speaking. So here she's saying, yeah, I don't think that's always the people. case. I, I mean, even if th- this isn't your particular struggle, who has had a coffee with a friend that just gets them and then walked away feeling like oh gosh I feel so poured into like if you have other people in your life you know it's really been fascinating even uh, having a a wife who's so intuitive and so kind of like honed in that she'll read it on my face she's like oh you just had coffee with so and so or you just there's like a different really almost to air and that's not you know and, and panic attacks aren't something that I'm prone to but there is even just a difference in our demeanor and I think 
that ties to this last one, the, the create this. Re- she says this refers to vocational health. It's coming back to our eight year old selves. What made us come alive as kids? We hadn't learned to be afraid yet. So we played without fear. Use the gifts that God has given you to redeem the things that broke your heart, which a lot of people avoid because they're like, well, I'm not a professional painter. So why bother painting? I'm not a professional cyclist. So why bother going for a bike ride? That's a very like adult way of thinking about it. But going back to the eight year old self and saying, I'm not a very good painter. I just yep. like it. Yep. I'm not a great guitar player. I like playing guitar, though. And for me personally, that helps me come alive a little bit. And, you know, I can tell the days and weeks and months, the stretches mm. where I'm not engaging those things because I, quote, have too much to do. You and I both have a lot to do, but I, I find myself much. I feel much more whole when I actually make space to actually, you know, have human connection, which we were talking about earlier, and to actually spend some time creating. Yeah, that's really good. I, I know of some people who have really stressful jobs who've taken up cooking. They've taken up yeah, hobbies. Right. They've taken right. up painting or totally. whatever else it might be, auto mechanics, whatever else it might be. And you're like, wow, you're taking another thing on. And they're just more like, no, this is so different from what I actually it's restorative. Do, yeah. That it just, ble- like, like you said, it, it, it just feeds their soul. So this is a new book out uh, again. Uh, by Rebecca Lyons. You can pick it up. It's called Rhythms of Renewal, Trading Stress for a Life of Peace and Purpose. Trading Stress for a Life of Peace and Purpose. Well, coming up after the break, the Washington Post had a fascinating article that was titled this, Jesus isn't interested in America's two-party division. We're going to dive into this one next. Of course That's, we are. This is going to be something we're going to talk about next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. And we are, we have dove in just, we are head middle into a Tuesday here. Just a Tuesday. <laughs> head middle? What, what phrase was that? I, I wasn't going to say anything. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm going to start using that all the time now. Could you repeat what you just said? <laughs> no, I couldn't at all. You're 12 seconds away from it. Try and say what you just said. I can't. We are head middle in a Tuesday. Head dove in. Dove middle. That is awesome. That's awesome. That's, you know, what they teach in school. I can speak this language good. Uh, at the Washington Post, uh, there is was a very challenging article the other day written by Michael Byrd. Let me tell you who Michael Byrd is. Uh, Michael Byrd is a academic dean of Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, and senior research fellow with the Australian College of Theology, co-author with N.T. Wright of The New Testament in Its World, An Introduction to the History, Literature, and Theology of the First Christians. And so he writes for the Washington Post, kind of an op-ed for the Washington Post the other day, called this, Jesus isn't interested in America's two-party division. Oh, snap. 
He writes, as a scholar of the New Testament and a professing Christian, I simply do not recognize the plethora of American, and he quotes, puts in quotes, Jesus's, I like the plural of Jesus there, Jesus's, spawned by the political left and the political right. What I see is neither the Jesus of Nazareth I know from history, nor the Christ of faith that I know from my church. To begin with, I'm not remotely convinced by the Jesus of American conservative culture. A Jesus who sounds like a deified version of Ronald Reagan. A Jesus who believes that God helps those who help themselves. A Jesus who rejects biological evolution, but ostensibly believes in an economic contest of survival of the fittest. Then among progressives, their Jesus is often described in ways that would probably best fit the long lost love child of Lenin and Lady Gaga, who grew up to become an Antifa, an Antifa activist. The industry of progressive politics trades in a secular Jesus sanitized of anything that sounds too religious. He goes on to say, I understand that everyone wants Jesus on their political side. In fact, I find it heartening that Jesus is still the endorsement that everybody wants. But there are immense costs being played, being paid when politicians and pundits claim Jesus on their own side. The primary problem is, of course, the absurd anachronisms. Uh, and so uh, just that as the introduction to this article uh, you think he's off, or is he dropping just kind of a big truth bomb right here that we all need to hear? <laughs> Those are my two options. They are. He's either off or, or dropping truth bomb. Truth, bombs. <laughs> truth bomb. No, I mean, he's saying better what you and I have been saying for 10 months. Yep. I, I think that there is something to be said about getting at some of our desires behind why we still continue to do this. I think it's pretty interesting. So you and I are, are probably not smart enough to really take a deep dive into the psyche yep. to understand fully socially why this keeps happening. But I think that there is something to be said about why Jesus even still is seen as a quote, like valuable spokesperson. Like that's a big endorsement. That's an, that's an interesting take that I, I don't think I've heard uh, put exactly like that before he goes on to say, I cannot help but think the Apostle Paul had a word of rebuke to America and his attempts to invoke the memory of Jesus to support his politics. And mm. he quotes Second Corinthians, if a person comes and preaches some other Jesus than the one we preached, or if you received a different spirit than the one you'd received or a different gospel than the one you embraced, you put up with it so easily. That's Second Corinthians 11, 4 through 5. It's far more likely, far more likely that Jesus, historical man and exalted Lord, does not neatly fit into any side of the political spectrum. The Jew from Nazareth cuts across the traditional political lines. No party owns him as if the Lord of the cosmos could be owned. Jesus does not answer to political super PACs and cannot be made to utter political endorsements on cue. Jesus cannot be mapped onto, let alone owned by the mm. American political divide. For people who are serious about following Jesus, which I think is that's a helpful caveat, right? Yep, For people yep. who are serious about following Jesus and how to live out their faith in him, it is not a question as to whether Jesus believes in our politics. Rather, the real question has to be whether we believe in Jesus and in his kingdom as a challenge to our politics. In other words, for Christians, the point of contention should not be whether Jesus is more conducive to Republican or Democratic parties, but whether we are prepared to break from the polarization of our politics to engage mm. in a more authentic mode of discipleship. And I'll just stop with this. To follow Jesus will inevitably require us to walk away from long-held political loyalties to reorder our lives around a new constellation of values shaped by Jesus' teachings, his example, his death and resurrection, and his lordship over all things. That that to me fits 
much more squarely in the truth bomb category yes. that you mentioned earlier. I think that's so – I actually would love to hear disagreement with that from people that would consider themselves Jesus followers. Like, is there a side of this that we're missing yeah. that someone listening is like, no, this this guy, this Michael Byrd character is way off? Because to me, this feels universal. Yeah, because while you and I, uh, we've never really talked about our specific politics, but my guess is that we agree on a lot and disagree on some. Uh, but I think when it comes to this, you and I are pretty uh, united in, in how, the Christ, how the Christ follower needs to view politics in the world. And so I would be interested to know if someone's like, hey, you guys just keep getting this wrong. We'd love to hear uh, from that because this uh, man, that is such a statement, whether we're prepared to break from the polarization of our politics to engage in a more authentic mode of discipleship like it. You know, it's easy to say that Jesus is the lens through which we view everything in this world. And this is a good test case. Like, how do you view politics? How do you view policy? How do you view the issues of the world? Are they through the lens uh, of the gospel? Because he goes on to say following Jesus does not mean being apolitical, becoming disinterested in the affairs of government. In fact, quite the opposite, he says. Being a follower of Jesus means trying to forge our own political values based upon the story and symbols of Jesus himself, according to his kingdom, his teaching, and according to the faith delivered once and for all to the saints. Jesus's way is the way of love for the poor and prophesying truth against the tyrant. And so he's saying, no, the Christian needs to be fully engaged, uh, but it's not about political parties and winning political battles, but about... uh, kind of having the eyes of Jesus towards our culture and towards the world. Well, okay, this this to me is where the whole thing kind of comes to a head. It says, as a theologian, I can tell you that in Christ, there's neither Republican nor Democrat, Libertarian or Green, Dixocrat or Republicrat, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. All of us, whether of the red or the blue, of the elephant or the donkey, must discern within the precincts of our own conscience what a follower of Jesus would do about health care, gun violence, the opioid epidemic, foreign policy, and immigration. Not naming Jesus as our patron, but faithfully figuring out how to follow him in a context far removed Mm. from his own. And then here's how he ends, and this is a little self-serving. Politics informed by religion is a means to a common good. Boom. But politics which Jesus (laughs) haphazardly tacked on at the end does not make for a good religion. Instead, we heed Jesus' call for his church to be, quote, the light of the world in a city on a hill by setting forth a vision of human vocation and value that honors the God who made us and redeemed us in Christ. That, to me, is profoundly important and so much easier said than done. I imagine people right and left listening right now like, well, that's what I'm trying to do. Mm. That's what I want. And yet it tends to come out all wonky. And I think that's that's where the real question lies. How do I actually do these things when it feels like the polarization is is what gets stuff done? Absolutely. And we we keep bringing up articles and ideas like this because I've been saying we're about to enter into just such an unbelievably contentious uh, election cycle. We're in the middle of it already. Even though it's a year out, we're in the middle of it. And so the church has both opportunity to really uh, give itself a black eye over the next year, or the church of Christ followers has an opportunity uh, to live differently uh, and to, uh, to live this out. But you brought up to the people who are like, no, I am trying to do this. What would be some red flags or yellow flags of like, you know what, you're, 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 we're off on this. What would be some words of warning to people and maybe some correctives? I think maybe the best starting point is just to pay attention to your own defensiveness. I don't think there's any way to have a healthy dialogue when when we take things really personally and we feel like either my party or my religion like needs constant defending. I'm not saying mm-hmm. there aren't times to stand up and say, no, you're completely misinterpreting. I actually listened to a podcast the other day. I was talking about it was a guy who was an atheist. He was making a claim about Christianity. And I was like, I don't know a single Christian that actually believes that. 
so here's a guy, you know, I, like I wanted to like yell at the podcast, like, hey, this this isn't actually true. But when you notice sort of that like churning, that internal like, oh, I gotta, I gotta defend this right here and yeah. now. We we lose the capacity to like really learn and hear what the other person is saying, and I think healthy dialogue requires that we both actually listen, not just to respond, but to understand. And that I, it is maybe a, a starting point. That's good. I think another word of warning is if you always think that your uh, your party, your preferred party, is always right and you're always defending them. It's probably a problem. Yeah, right. It's probably a problem. We'd love to hear this. This uh, article has been floating around the Internet. And uh, since it came out, we would love to hear your reactions at our Facebook page. This is from The Washington Post called Jesus Isn't Interested in America's Two-Party Division. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Back to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You can find more uh, content at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Well, uh, as radio hosts, we like talking, like hearing ourselves talk, but we like to more hear like hearing other people talking. talk. Yeah, right. We more like to have other people in studio. And we are really excited to be joined uh, by two friends of ours, uh, Rob and Sam from Thrive It. And so we're going to let you guys just uh, introduce yourself. Why don't you go first? Okay, great. Um, hi, I'm Sam <laughs> Fisher, and I'm with Thrivin as a Thrivin member network specialist. Whoa. I'm excited to be here. And I'm awesome. a fan of your work. Oh, well, thank oh, you. Wow. Yeah. Well, just keep talking then. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> great. <laughs> And this isn't part of the script, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not right, so, a talking point. So, uh, Feel free to ad lib how great they are. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, uh, long time fan, first time listener. Thank okay. you. <laughs> this is going serious. great, you guys. That's amazing. That's not true. I've listened a bunch of times before. So, I'm, I'm Rob. And uh, I lead uh, the uh, uh, the fraternal division of Thrivent Whoa. in the Chicagoland area, <laughs> and uh, and the uh, vice president and treasurer of the Thrivent member network, which is our regional board. Look at you, uh-huh. man! He's a big deal. <laughs> I've been saying that for years. I know it. Okay, for people who have, argue, people have no idea what Thrivent is or what it's about. Would you just maybe in your own words? Because I feel like people people want to know. Okay, what's the heartbeat of the company that you have invested so much of your time yeah. and life into? Give us just a little. 30,000 foot overview of what Thrivent's all about. Well, I think it's how we met you. That is, that's very true. You know, and I think it, I think our, our original introduction between you and I is that we were plugging into a marriage conference in the mm-hmm. Bartlett with our uh, buddy Mike Feeling, mm-hmm. and uh, we introduced ourselves to each other, and what we were trying to do was trying to help uh, uh, couples over the weekend figure out, you know what? How do we have better marriages all together? Right. And there are three things that, you know, my favorite pastor mentor had always talked to me that that can be the 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 biggest drawback on marriages. Mm. Everybody talks to it's money, sex, and family. Mm. And the one thing that he that I'll never forget, and he just passed away two weeks ago. No but kidding. I'll never forget what he said to me. Is he said, you know, everybody will tell me stories about family and about sex, but nobody will talk to me about money. Wow. And so, you know, I think what we do more than anything is uh, money is difficult to talk about. There's a lot of shame mm. that goes around mm-hmm. it. And right. I think we are the we are the company that best represents, uh, number one, we're an organization of Christians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And secondly, we love to have conversations with everybody mm-hmm. about money. You don't have to have a certain amount to put in. You don't have to have investable assets. We want to help you where you are. That's mm-hmm. awesome. That's such a true statement. Money is something we don't talk about. And I'm wondering why you guys think that is why why are we so slow to talk about money Mm -hmm. well i I could say from my perspective i grew up um incredibly economically challenged Mm -hmm. and like 
I think when you don't have any, you don't even know where to start the conversation. And right, when you start things. to get it, you're even more lost because you're like, mm-hmm. do I pay off debt? Do mm-hmm. I invest? Do I purchase my first home? Like it's it, it's I think financial literacy in general is a big challenge nowadays. And I think when you're starting from a set point where you're not even um, secure in where you stand in that scenario, mm-hmm. it's hard to educate, you know, the generations to come. So yeah. I, I, I that's kind of my mindset on it. And um, one thing I'm really proud of with Thriven is that, you know, that financial planning piece is is very intuitive. Like Rob said, it's like wherever you're at, we're really here to help you. Um, and then having the Christian focus is not only, you know, thinking about how much you want to acquire, but mm. figuring out like what's your enough and how can you bless others in the community oh, wow. with your values. So mm. that's my perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and that's always the thing that I've appreciated about thriving because it's not just right. The being wise with money. It's also the living Gen- generously yep. part. Mm-hmm. And I remember. Right out of college, they're trying to figure out like, okay, who am I gonna who am I gonna entrust my money to? And talking about the money I want to give away, like, mm-hmm. and I was always met with these weird expressions, like, well, "How would you give your money away?" Like, <laughs> yeah. there was this real disconnect of value systems that I, when I met Thriven, was even I think it was even at that conference talking with you just a little bit about what Thriven does. I was like, oh. These people might actually get the heartbeat behind. I'm not mm. just looking to amass a bunch of wealth. I actually believe it's central to our faith to live generously and thrive. Mm-hmm. And doesn't just help people individually do that. The company as a whole mm. actually does that. Can you talk about some of the ways that Thriving like gives back to the community yeah. and engages with people that way? Mm-hmm. Sure. I think you're. I think what you're talking about is I had met with. I was in an industry before, in a banking industry, where it was advantageous for advisors to meet with me. Mm. And so I probably met with somewhere between 15 to 20 over a five- or six-year period. Mm. And they all talk about accumulation. Mm-hmm. It's all about the end game and accumulation right. and what you have. And the first time I ever met with a thriving advisor, uh, he, said to, uh, he said to us, he said, you have the ability to be much more generous. Is that something that you're interested in right now? Wow. Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm like, uh, I think we should hold on to our money and do that. And then my, <laughs> wife's, ready to, my wife's just ready to write checks away. Right, because yeah. I mean, she's the better person than I am. <laughs> that. You're not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> right. and, uh, you know. For the record, Rob is great. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Sam. Yeah. But she works for me, so she has yeah. to say that. Yeah. I would say it either way. Despite the hierarchy, I still think Despite you're a good person. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are a number of ways that we, that we give back into the community. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the time, we have we have about just in the Chicagoland area, we have somewhere between eight to eighty five thousand members, which wow. other financial services organizations would consider them customers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're a membership owned organization. So those members all have privileges because they're members of Thrivent. So mm-hmm. through the through the different aspects, and we won't go deep into that today, but just in the Chicagoland area, I mean, most of the time in the Chicagoland area, we're probably giving back somewhere between six to nine million a year. No kidding. Just in the Chicagoland area, and then overall. The thriving, I mean, from the last five years, it's been anywhere from, you know, it's between two to three hundred million every wow. year that thriving corporate puts back in. And some of it are big initiatives. We yeah. do things that, you know, we support Habitat for Humanity. Wow. Mm-hmm. But most of the dollars that go back into the community are directed by our members. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's where I'd encourage, you know, especially your listeners and how many conversations you and I have had about this is that, yeah. you know, this is this is a way that we can help others live generously because we know it's not just our wallets. Mm-hmm. It's it's our time. That's mm-hmm. right. I mean, because people say times, talents, and treasures, and I hear that and I'm like, ugh, you know, I'm so tired <laughs> of hearing that. I and we actually have a, we actually have 
have a workshop. I was going to say, I'm like, Rob. Yeah, I know. No, I, that's only, it's one, that's it's only one bad thing though. so far. It's a, it's, it's a great workshop, right? It's yeah. a great workshop. Work it's a great workshop. Rob teach it? Probably not anymore. I'm just kidding. I'm I've done my last one. No, no. It's great. That's funny. That question you asked where someone came to you and said, you have the ability to be more generous, and that kind of being a weird question. When you guys ask that to people, do you send, do you find people wanting to be generous or are they kind of taken aback by the question also? Like, why would I want to do that? What's kind of your experience with people? Well, I, w- I would say it depends on it depends on who you're talking to. And I think it's a generational thing. Oh, interesting. What I've, that I've kind of crossed, because if I asked my so if I asked my dad, I say, Dad, you know, you have the ability to be much more generous. He's like, that means he's writing a check. Mm, it has wow. nothing to do okay. with his time. But if we ask Sam. Or somebody who's younger, and we say, you know, you have the ability to be much more generous. They think, mm. how can I volunteer? Mm. So I think that the answer to that is, is that, yeah, I think we have to explain it. But there are multiple ways that you can be generous. And more generationally, people don't understand that there are multiple ways that you can be generous that's every right. day. That's you right. Know? And so it's part of, that's, that's all part of the education. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious how you would answer that question, being kind of newer to the mm-hmm. thriving team, but also mm-hmm. like your experience has almost, I, I think it seems like in most of your adult years has involved giving back in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. just, I think that's kind of central mm-hmm. to your heart. Have mm-hmm. you found that to be true generationally of people your age and younger mm-hmm. that they want to be a part of something outside of themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it it depends a little bit on age and a little bit just on the person. And yeah. it goes back to the question that Brian had about finances, you know. How do people perceive? I think it's the same thing with generosity. You know, mm-hmm. you talk to some um, younger adults nowadays that are working two to three jobs just to get by. That right. are strapped with a lot of college debt. You know, maybe their generosity looks a little bit different. Maybe like it's like what Rob's saying, a little bit more of their time and their talents. And I won't say treasures because I know what's going to happen there. <laughs> it's like saying hey, yeah, yeah. three times yeah, or something. Right. <laughs> but, and then, you know, maybe for some of the young adults who are a little bit more well-off, they don't have debt and yeah. they have the capacity to give. I think the biggest thing is, like, you don't know what you don't know. And mm. when you have a financial planner that's forcing that question as part of the conversation about your mm. wealth, I think that allows you to start to think a little bit more introspectively about, well, what are my values? Like, yeah. what are my charities of choice? Right. You know, how can I... How can I bless others? How can I put my faith in action? And the great thing is if, you know, like, honestly, if you're a Thrivent member, even if you are in a place where you're a little bit more economically challenged to start, you still have access to Thrivent Choice Dollars. You still have, you know, if you're a qualifying member, you still have action or access to action teams that, mm-hmm. you know, we we provide tools for you to, to bless others in the community. And it's not, you know, your own monetary dollars to start. So yeah. it's pretty unique. We are excited to be joined in studio uh, by Rob and Sam from Thrivent, and they're going to stay with us for another segment. Coming up next, we're going to keep talking about the mission behind Thrivent and how people can connect with them and churches can connect with them as well. Uh, You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. And we are really excited to be joined in studio for a second segment by uh, Rob and by Sam from Thrivent. You can learn more about Thrivent at Thrivent.com. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-N-T, Thrivent.com. And uh, you guys were talking off air with us about there are so many ways for people to get engaged with you guys. So there's somebody driving in their car right now or listening to their podcast going, well, what could I do with Thrivent. Maybe let me just throw that question out there. How can people engage with you? 
Yeah. Uh, well, aside from being a member, or like mm-hmm. even connecting with a financial professional to like learn more about opportunities, we do have career opportunities with Thrivent. So we're always looking, you know, for more amazing talent in the community that are looking to put their faith in action mm-hmm. and kind of live and work with purpose. And I know Rob can speak a little bit more to that. Um, but we have corporate and definitely local financial professional opportunities. Oh, right on. Yeah, I think I think most of the time when we we're we're searching for people, they're not aware that they actually might be interested. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll ask the question. So, so you know, what do you love about your job mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what could you change mm-hmm. in doing that? And, and the, the question that we find by far, or the answer, I should say, that we find the most common is, is you know, the flexibility. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And then they figure out and they're like, okay, so here's, here's, so would I actually be able to do this? Because most people think, boy, I have to have a finance degree, at yeah. least a business degree yeah. or something else hmm. to get into that. We teach all of that no part. No kidding. If you love to connect with people, if you're passionate uh, about faith, if you even enjoy finances hmm. <laughs> and you can communicate generosity to people, yeah. mm-hmm. this might be something. We might be a company that you should take a look at. No, awesome. I'm kidding. Where would they yeah. go to do that, by the way? Is there somewhere on the website in particular if someone's interested in further career opportunities? Yeah, so you can go You can go to Thrivent.com and uh, and say, and there are opportunities section in there. Nice. It's under, uh, it, it's, I don't know, there's about 84 tabs and you'll probably never find it. Now that I think about it, you put me on the spot. Hotline. We'll post it on our Facebook page. Yeah. So there is a, yep. yeah. We do have a hotline, and that number is 630-598-2128. Right on. And we'd love for you to call and learn more. It's also, um, I think, a, a great note about working with Thrivent, especially being a female, I just enjoy the flexibility and the family yeah. focus. And I think sometimes that's hard to communicate hmm. um, in other atmospheres professionally. And definitely with Thrivent, they're really about empowering women and um, making sure that there's that transition and flexibility so you can balance a home, your faith, your finances, yeah. all that kind of stuff, your career. That's fantastic. Well, yeah. And I want to say, too, like for me, my relationship with Thrivent has been so, what's the word, organic, I guess. Like yeah. people, people are sometimes surprised by like how openly I talk about Thrivent. Mm-hmm. And I will often say when, when an organization has been this good to you, it's actually not hard to talk. Mm. Like I, I, totally. I legitimately, when I was pastoring a church in Bartlett and somebody was like, hey, we offer these workshops for churches that want to help their people kind of better understand these things. I was like, Fantastic! I don't know how to teach any of this. Yeah, and they're like, great. We'll uh, we'll bring in some dinner and we'll train your leaders. Yeah. And we'll train like I could not believe mm-hmm. that there was an organization that was actually doing those things. Then you talk about the action teams, and I've taken part in that a number of times. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd be curious to know: are there other events coming up that you think people should be mindful of? Is there like listening, and maybe they're on mm-hmm. the fence or they're curious, they're looking to do more? Yes. Well, oh my gosh. First one. Let yes. me let me answer the first one. Is okay. that we decided <laughs> to bring in? she's going to go over please the detail man for this for me. Right. <laughs> just but, I just talked about empowering women. He's like, I'm just going to make her stop talking. I've been waiting for this the whole segment. Okay, yeah, I've been okay, I'm waiting for this the whole segment. Is that we are bringing in special guest Nickelback to play oh in the back of gosh. Ian's oh to play gosh. in the back of Ian's yard this is in his house. I'm, I got to call Charles Schwab real quick. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, and now this interview is going anymore. really well. That's all I wanted to do. I was like, how am I going to weave Nickelback into this oh, conversation? Oh, now, I mean, now let's him take over. Okay, Charles Schwab. That's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Well, we do. We have a lot of opportunities, and we um, we're really excited because we've opened them up to AM eleven sixty listeners. And so, um, the upcoming events that we have, we're hosting a Giving Tuesday event. So we're encouraging oh, nice. folks to give back on Giving Tuesday. They can do that by you know joining some volunteer shifts. We're hoping we're hosting at Northern Illinois Food Bank on December third. Mm. Um, there's shifts in the 
morning, there's shifts in the afternoon, and we'll have social media posts on your Facebook page, yes. you know, so that folks can just kind of go to the links and sign up, which Perfect. is exciting. There's no cost for the events that we're hosting, so it's really just registration-based and almost always has some sort of generosity component. Yeah. So whether like the Giving Tuesday, you're giving back of your time. Um, the next event after that is December 14th. It's a holiday celebration, a Christmas mm-hmm. celebration that we're doing at um, Riverside Receptions in Geneva. Nice. That's from 9 a.m. to 11.30 and all we're asking again from guests is them to bring toy donations that are going to bless Habitat for Humanity families around the holidays awesome. so that they don't have to have that expense. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and that's like brunch with Santa and lots of activities on site. Oh, Nickelback's awesome. playing. <laughs> so it's just like... Oh, you guys really have them. He's still playing. Yep, yeah, two for two. Nothing says holiday brunch like Nickelback. Nickelback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love what you said, too, Ian. It's like, I'm so proud. I'm always... And I'm not just wearing my Live Generously shirts all the time because they're so comfy. They are legitimately like, comfy. They are legitimately comfy. But I, I like I love speaking about Thriving because it's so easy. Um, I'm proud to work for Thriving. I'm also a member. I just... Mm-hmm. I feel like what you're saying is so true. It's like once you have an experience that's positive... Like with any brand or a company totally. or a nonprofit, right. it makes it easier to genuinely mm-hmm. share. And um, that's why we host these events and welcome not only members, but family, friends, guests, the community, because we want more folks to see what yeah. we're all about because we're proud of it. That's awesome. Yeah. You're you awesome. talk to the people out there who I remember when I was more in my 20s thinking, well, I don't need to talk to a financial planner or financial person until I have a lot of money. Right, mm. right. And literally, I remember somebody <laughs> calling me out. I'm a youth pastor with a baby. I had no money. And I was right. like, yeah. what are we going to talk about? <laughs> yeah. Could you guys talk to that person out there who's like, I'm just I got debt. I got this. I'll call you when I've got that high paying mm. job down right. the road sometime. Yeah. Sam talked earlier that she came from a, a probably a challenging you know, economic background when yeah. she was younger. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I had the, I, I was, I was ideal. And, um, mm. you know, as I got older, I didn't think that I had, I needed to meet with anybody. And it was before I was not 32 or 33 before I actually sat down and met with an advisor because mm. we were a mess. Mm. I was, I was, I was doing very well. But we had no idea how to manage it yeah, right. and, and no idea how to manage it. No idea really how to spend. We'd taken basic budgetary classes, but you mm. can go through a lot of school. And not get any of this kind of information yes, ever. Right. And so, you know, by the time we actually sat down and came up with a plan, I would say to that 25 or 30-year-old, don't wait too long because sometimes it's too late. Yeah. For mm-hmm. us, we were lucky enough where we were able to recover mm. in doing it, but it took us years mm-hmm. to get back. And it wasn't because we weren't making enough money. It's because we were spending it unwisely right. and we weren't budgeting and doing that. And so, you know, one of the things that I love about Thrivent and one of the reasons why I came here was is that there is no minimum investable account that you have to have. Mm-hmm. You do not have to have a certain number of liquid assets mm-hmm. moving forward. We meet people where they are mm. and we try to help them plan so then they can move forward and they can be prepared for the uncertain. Yeah. We prepare mm-hmm. people for the uncertain, which mm-hmm. is that's, that's what awesome. we do. Yeah, no kidding. Anything yeah. you would add to that? Yeah, I would say um, for folks that like you're saying you don't know where to start or mm-hmm. you know, I I think you should do some basic reading on um, the topic of, you know, financial literacy or financial education, because once you learn about compound interest, it is magic. It is just 
it's lightning in a bottle and it doesn't matter if you this idea of it's kind of like when people try and family plan like oh I just need to get here and then when I have kids Mm. everything will be perfect and it'll all fall into place and we'll never have an issue it's like (laughs) that's not realistic it's not right yeah 100% it's easy for you right yeah yeah. Katie no problem (laughs) you'll never be in a place she's yelling right now yeah (laughs) she's like shaking her you'll never be in a place where everything is together enough where you'll feel like you can invest and it's just going to be like again lightning in a bottle it's just you have to start today you have to commit to making a plan and working with people who know more than you because we can't all be experts right mm-hmm. and um and it just you have that ability to start really working with compound interest which is amazing yeah yeah, yeah. and i would add one other thing it takes courage yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's the biggest portion yeah. is that they're your first meeting it takes courage because mm-hmm. you have to lay out i mean you can tell a lot by a person where their heart is by looking at their checkbook and, or their ATM debit accounts. Right, right. And it takes courage to show someone else that because then you have to realize there might be an issue. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you saying that too because I imagine someone's listening and they're thinking like, gosh, these guys are talking right to me. My yeah. finances are mm-hmm. a mess. Mm-hmm. I've been hiding it from everybody. Oh, yeah. My parents didn't teach me how to do this. And the thought of like laying that bear before somebody yep. is terrifying, yeah. which to me, honestly, Thrivent being a faith-based organization was yeah. part of the tipping point for me because it felt like, mm-hmm. okay, at the core of this whole Jesus message thing is that we have no need for shame anymore. Right. And I was getting all this shame about my finances and knowing mm-hmm. that we had that piece in common for me like was the tipping point to say, all right. As, as much of a mess as I am, I can share this honestly, yeah. and it was the best decision I think I could have made. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Well, yeah. Rob and Sam, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We'll do this again sometime, but we'd encourage everybody out there to go to thriveit.com and uh, just play around on the website and find what, what could work for churches, for you as an individual, all these events going on. Uh, thank you guys so much for doing this. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, fellas. Absolutely. You listen to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. That music can only mean one thing, that we are at the end of the show for some interweb insanity. But before we jump in and we get to these crazy stories, let me tell you about MyPillow. Because we have an exclusive offer for our listeners just in time for the holidays. In fact, if you buy a set of Giza cotton sheets from MyPillow, you'll get the second set for free. Two for one. Not only that, but you'll get free shipping if you add anything else to the order, like my pillows, mattress toppers, towels, anything. Those items will ship free as well. Common Good listeners can get deep discounts on all my pillow products, but you just have to use the promo code WYLL. My wife and I, uh, we've gotten some my pillow sheets and pillows. Makes for a good night's sleep, my man. And and the towels. They are glorious. So you should go get those. All pillows, all products have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the Radio Listener Specials box, put in the promo code WYLL, or call 1-800-489-020. I've never heard of a warranty for sheets in my life. Isn't that great? It's great. What does that protect against? They're uncomfortable. You don't like them. Is that what a warranty is, though? Yeah, I think so. Allows you to return them. For 10 years? It's a good point. I guess if they have holes in them, you can return them and get new ones. All right. There you go. You go first. Me go first. You go first. <laughs> Me speak well. <laughs> Ohio customers, employees chase deer through Ohio Walmart. See, this is more our speed. This is it. Yesterday was all international and weird. Workers and employees at a Walmart store in Ohio came to the rescue of a confused deer that made its way inside the store and couldn't find a way back out. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Video captured by witnesses inside the Wooster store Wednesday afternoon show customers and employees pursuing the deer through the aisles. Bert Moore 
One of the customers who captured video of the deer eventually stopped filming so he and another customer could grab the doe and escort her to the nearest door. Me and the other gentleman actually flipped the deer over and scooted it on the ground until we got it all the way through the store. More, more said the deer, which did not appear to be seriously injured, ran off toward a nearby cornfield. Cue sound of music. Doe! A deer! A female deer. Yeah, that was my I guess. I was on it. I was on it. Okay. I believe, I believe in you. Arizona. Company will pay somebody $1,000 to watch 24 Hallmark Christian, uh, Christmas movies. Not enough money. Cheesy and predictable as they are, a few things say Christmas, like Hallmark's Christmas movies. They're a holiday season guilty pleasure for many aficionados. Look forward to them all year long. Do not dare to bother them when they're snuggled down with their special Hallmark Christmas movie watching blanket. Lovers of these G-rated rom-coms are legion. And if you're one of them, you could make a cool $1,000 for 12 days of work. 12 days. Get it? CenturyLink is taking. I say I read the print there. CenturyLink is taking applications for what it calls Hallmark Movie Dream Job. It's a straightforward gig. Watch twenty four Hallmark movies in twelve days and critique the lineup. Sans spoilers. CenturyLink says the perfect candidate will be at least eighteen years old and love Christmas. You also have to be active on social media and be willing to share your movie marathon with followers. The deadline to apply is Friday, December six. And no, you do not have to be a CenturyLink customer to apply. Hmm. I don't know what that, that was. Doesn't sound. That was a mistake. <laughs> ah, there we go. So nothing says holiday movie marathons yeah. like a cheeseburger. It was a total technical difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for writing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, England family smoke alarm catches fire. <laughs> oh, that's a sermon illustration there. An MUM told how a fire at her family's home started in the smoke alarm. Tracy Box Smith, 31, lives in Outing Close, South End, with her partner Peter and their six children. Aged five months, five, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Holy oh, wow. cow. That's already the most amazing part of the story. Yes. She believes the property's old fuse board meant uh, fuse board meant it didn't trip. Fortunately, her partner put out the flames before they spread. Tracy told the Echo, I'm a nervous wreck. The kids are terrified. They didn't sleep that night. I dread to think what could have happened. The alarm is two meters from the front door where the stairs were. We wouldn't have made it out. This is a scary story. Yes, mostly. I'll just go to the very end. Uh, the spokeswoman for Estuary Housing Association said the contractor confirmed only the lighting circuit was affected and undertook an inspection to ensure the property was safe. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> California. Disneyland Bridge breaks after man allegedly jumps on it to show children it's safe. Oh, my gosh. A wooden plank on a bridge in Disneyland reportedly broke on Sunday afternoon. The plank was part of a suspension bridge that sits three stories above the ground as part of Tarzan's treehouse oh, no. attraction. According to MiceChat.com, the wooden plank broke after a man jumped on it in efforts to show his children the bridge was safe. Disneyland officials told the website no park visitors were injured and the treehouse was closed immediately afterward, but it was reopened as of Monday afternoon. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> That's a real weird one. All right, let's end with Hawaii. He proposed while they surfed, then the ring fell in. Oh, no. A Hawaii man was surfing with his girlfriend when instead of hanging 10, he knelt down on one knee on his board and proposed per the AP. Hawaii News Now reported that Lauren... Oi, oi, oi! Said, uh, said yes. Just before Chris Garth dropped the ring in the ocean, multiple photo- uh, photographers nearby captured the Sunday moment. Luckily, he had a spare. <laughs> Garth said he knew it could go wrong, so he used a stand-in while they were out in the water. The real ring was on shore at Queens Beach in Waikiki, where the two met years before. Details about the rings weren't released. 
Oh, that's not, not nice. Good. How did we not? His name's Chris Garth. How did we not go with Party on Garth? Oh. Party on Wayne. Party on Garth. They're not really partying on though. That's. I think I proposed. Think yeah. He brought out, he brought out the other ring. That was a good move on his yeah, part. Smart well, man. A fun day all around here on this Tuesday. Thanks for listening. You can join us tomorrow from four to six. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.